0: That. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs and the 31st chapter of the book of Proverbs. This is going to be the last message in a series that we've been bringing over these last weeks. So we'll, we'll begin there in Proverbs 31. And I want to remind you that this is written to King Lemuel. That's how the chapter begins, the words of King Lemuel's mother. Now, we, we did a study and we concluded that King Lemuel is a a nickname, it's another word for Solomon. He had three names. His dad, David, called him Solomon. God sent Nathan the prophet into the room and said, "Um, I'm going to call him Jedidiah. And then his mother mother called him King Lemuel, meaning given by God. And so in, in the depths of her despair and the brokenness of her life, Bathsheba realized that after losing a child that, that, that Solomon was her rainbow child. That he was the joy that God had given back to her life because the message from Nathan was I'm going to call him uh, uh, Jedidiah and I, I want you to know that I love him. And so after a difficult and hard relationship and just a tough part of her life the message from god was i love him he's a blessing he's a gift and so so solomon now all these years later looks back on his mother with great fondness and so in chapter 31 we we actually find him recording the things that she taught him we'll look at those in just a moment but i, I want us to i want us to especially drop down to verse number 10 And I want you to really pay attention, because sometimes we blow through this. This is the virtuous woman. Okay, wow. She's unnamed, so that any woman can fill that slot, okay? It's not a specific woman. This is Solomon's mom, Bathsheba, teaching him the qualities of what you would find in a woman who has virtue, okay? So verse number 10, Who can find a virtuous woman, for her price is far above rubies? The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She's like the merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She considereth a field and buyeth it and with the fruit of her hands. She planteth a vineyard, she girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good, her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and and her hands lay hold of the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. He maketh fi- she maketh fine linen and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are in her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well. To the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Father, help us now in these moments we spend together i'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and to thank you lord for uh, just working things out where we're able to meet together in spite of everything going on around us and so now we would ask that the dear holy spirit would work in our lives and in our hearts and do the things dear god that we have need of and and we'll again praise you and thank you and give you glory and honor for all of it in jesus name i pray these things amen Now, the relationship that is under the spotlight here is the relationship of David and Bathsheba. Okay? That's, who, that's who the spotlight is on in these verses that we've read. All these years later, it, it began, as we know, in, in scandal. And the marriage to start with had very little hope of survival. You, you, you would not think they're going to make it. You wouldn't think, boy, they're they're a, they're a strong couple. You wouldn't think that the foundation was of such that it would be a lasting one. And so, immediately, when we look at it through rose-colored glasses, we, we can't see any hope of there being enough oxygen there for the marriage to continue. And yet, as we read our Bible all these years later, we find... Uh, That her husband holds her in high regards as is evidenced in his um, treatment of her when she is requesting uh, things for her son Solomon. And her son adores her. And in chapter 31, I don't know how you escape the feeling that this is a son speaking of his mother with words of, of great adoration. And he has a depth of love for her that 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 uh, just rises to the surface here is a mother who no doubt he heard whisperings about and no doubt he knew that he was born from a relationship that was less than desirable and that scandalized uh, the administration of one of the great kings of israel uh and 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 so this is this is an unlikely success story but why 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 did it succeed why did they make it I, I think that the foundation of their relationship didn't line up with the will of god and david chose cover up instead of confession and and that rarely ever works out in fact proverbs tells us in chapter 28 verse 13 he that covereth his sins shall not prosper but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy and so their sin that they tried to cover, particularly David, we don't know how much Bathsheba was into the cover-up, but we know that David was, was, was full-in, he was all-in to covering it up and trying to escape the consequences of what he had done, and, and we realize that, that that sin led to scandal, and that scandal led to sorrow, and, and a broken heart is a very poor foundation upon which to try to build marriage. And over the years of my ministry, I have to be honest with you, I've counseled countless couples with almost every problem imaginable. And to be honest with you, I've counseled some whose problems were very unimaginable. Things that were beyond the pale. Things that were beyond the scope of normality. It wasn't just interpersonal idiosyncrasies and, and rejection and struggles. There's been things that have been involved that were extraordinarily immoral and grotesque and things that that we could not even fathom could happen between people and and when I get to the place where I think nothing will shock me something comes along that does indeed shock me over my years of working with people the thing that frustrates people the most when I talk with them about marriage is that the simplicity of the solutions do not match what they see is the complexities of their problems. Okay, I've got complex problems, and you're giving me simple solutions. So your simple solutions won't fit my particularly complex problems uh, in our marriage. It's just like people that struggle with the simplicity of salvation. How can I be saved in such a simple manner? It has to be harder than that. And yet what God does is God cuts through all of the colliding emotions. He, He gets through all of that. And he gets right down to the heart of things. And yes, the solutions are simple. But that doesn't mean that they're easy. Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, used to say that God puts the cookies on the bottom shelf so that everybody can reach them. Everybody gets a handful. Whatever it is that God's giving out, that's what God does with his solutions. But again, that doesn't mean that they're easy. The reality in counseling, the difficulty is in getting people to figure out how do I take these simple solutions and actually apply them to my complex relationship, okay? We're complex people. We're made that way. We've got all sorts of emotions and, and, and personality quirks. You do? I don't. Anyhow. Mark, don't say no. You are loaded with them. No, I'm kidding. Mark brought the donuts. We have to tip our hat to our buddy. No, we do. And, and you know what? We have to get to a place to where we realize it's not everybody else that's got quirks. We, we have them too. We've got personality idiosyncrasies. And, and that's just a part of life. It's a part of our, our makeup. We're complex people. And so we have to take a simple solution and say, okay, how can I take this? and apply it to my situation that seems to me to be very complex. Sometimes both partners are willing to do that and the marriage thrives and becomes healthy. Sometimes only one is willing to work at it and the marriage struggles and staggers through survival mode. It may make it or it may not because it only has one chamber of the heart beating sometimes neither will work at it and so because there's no investment and there's no energy being put into the marriage it dies, it dies from a lack of, of the oxygen the marital energy that it needs in order to flourish and I want to just say this to you in this last message on this subject for the time being um, You can get great advice, and you can find really godly counsel, and all those things help. You can read the best books written. You can find people that do nothing but spend their life helping people repair their marriages. But in the long run, it's up to you two. In the long run, you're the only people on the field. The stadium is empty. There's no referees. There's nobody keeping score. In the long run, you're all alone, two of you, in the middle of your life, and you've got to make up your mind whether or not your relationship is worth the compromise, the sacrifice, the tears, the sweat, and the investment to make the marriage work. That's, that's, that's something that no one can do for you. You have to do it for yourself. Now, last week, I made an announcement. And with bated breath, all week, you have waited for me to tell you what exactly is it that destroys marriages. 99, and can I just throw a point nine in, okay? 99.9% of the time, this is what destroys the marriage and and uh, puts it in its grave now i'm not going to tell you right now i want to get you there okay (laughs) same bad time same bat channel so just stay with me let me tell you the steps let me give you the steps that that bring you to that point of 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 a great great death in your relationship first of all the first step toward it is disappointment okay now that seems simple enough, but disappointment is huge. Because you marry somebody, you marry somebody, and almost everybody has this image in their mind of what marriage is going to be. Okay, you, you watched, you know, I can't remember what it was, but they meet on the top of the Empire State Building, and they fall greatly in love. And, and, and here's the problem. In your relationship, in my relationship, in every relationship, there's no orchestra. Okay, because I mean, at right, the, just the right moment, the music starts sweeping. And, and you don't know why. I had an aunt that cried when the theme for Lassie came on. It wasn't the dog, it was the music. And so, you know, this sweeping music. And she's sitting there sobbing. I remember as a kid thinking, why is she crying? And it was the music. And so they've got this mood music going. And right when he looks at her and she looks at him and, and, and he says, it's you. And she says, yeah, it's me. Then the the orchestra starts sweeping through, and boy, everything feels good. And that's how we build our marriage, you know, on the great romance movies that we've seen, you know. And and so uh, the reality of the matter is that's not what life is about. Look at me. Let me help you with this. Life isn't Hallmark. How many of you like Hallmark? Well, some of you need to get right. Okay, I like good. I look every Hallmark. Here's what I have to. This is why I like Hallmark. I know how it's going to end, and it's going to end happy. I listen. I am, I am the absolute epitome of the happy ending guy. Okay, I am the guy that wrote Old Yeller. Execute him, head off, guillotine. How could you? What? What kind of a demented human? But anyhow, so so the reality of the I'm a happy ending guy. Okay, so so I know how it's going to end. (coughs) It's going to end happy. (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me, and the best part is I only have to watch the last five minutes. Once I get the last five minutes in, I know how it's going to end. Okay, and so it, it, it's, it's all there. But that's not life. Things don't always end happily. Sometimes they end tragically in, in, in with and with a broken heart. I, I think that, think about Bathsheba. She was the last of David's eight wives. Now, if you want to sit down with the scripture, I can prove to you that's not scriptural or biblical. That God had never intended that. So shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. That was the plan of God from beginning. But because of man's lust and his inability to control his desires, it gets to a place to where uh, man, man um, uh, goes out of bounds, so to speak. And so Bathsheba is the last of David's eight wives. I have no doubt that his deference to her was because he had been the cause of her heartache and her heartbreak. And so he treats her with a certain amount of respect, knowing she is where she was because of actions that he had uh, ignited. And so she was forced to leave what was. Listen to me. She was forced to leave what was and to live in what is. Okay, People struggle. People struggle with what was. I want what was. No, what was is gone. And you have to let go of what was and somehow find a way to navigate yourself through what is. Because what was will never be reclaimed. It will never come back. You can spend your entire life pining for yesterday, but you cannot reclaim one singular second of yesterday. You have to learn to live in the now with what is. Okay, that's, that's where Bathsheba... Was that? She knew failure, she knew tragedy, she knew guilt, and felt the sharp pain of consequences because of her actions. And in verse two of chapter thirty-one, look, look at what she says to her son. She says, "What my son, and what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows." You know what she's doing? She's bleeding. This, this is, this is words. She's bleeding words. She is venting. She's got her boy sit down in front of her. And she's saying to him, son, look at me. Listen, you're the son of my womb. You are the son of my vows. When I messed up, when I sinned, I made vows to God. If you let this child live, I'll give him to you. I'll raise him right. I'll be a woman of integrity. I will, I will undo what I did. I will live differently. I will become a different person than I have been. And so she's, she's pouring her heart out. If you read those verses down uh, as you go, he talks, she says, don't, don't give your strength to women. In other words, what she's saying to him is stay moral. Stay morally pure. Son, don't follow our footsteps. Don't walk the path that we walk. Stay morally pure. The second thing she says to him, and that is to stay away from alcohol. Why? Because it perverts judgment. Okay. Now I want to say this to you, I will not lose one ounce of sleep tonight for anybody that disagrees with me on this subject, because I started at the beginning of the book and I read to the end of the book, and there's no possible way that you'll ever convince me that in any setting of any kind, except for a medical problem back then, which we don't need today, that God used alcohol whatsoever to enhance somebody's life. But oh my soul, the carnage and the wreckage, the destruction, the damnation that it brought into the lives of people throughout the Bible and throughout history. And if what is being said today by modern pastors in their modern pulpits is true, then the women's temperance movement that was created to try to save their husbands from the ills of alcohol was the largest group of ignoramuses that ever walked the planet. But they knew. They knew what it had done to their homes, to their marriages, to the hopes of their children in the future. And so here's a mama. Here's a mother that is begging and pleading and asking her son to to stay away from an ill and an evil that will destroy him. You know, I preached this at camp. Every time I go to a camp, I, I, I teach on the subject of alcohol and, and what the Scripture says about it. and I, I walk the kids through it. Altars are packed with kids making vows of abstinence. I've never had a single adult come up to me and say, You know, Pastor, I've got to disagree with you. I come from the home of an alcoholic, and it was a blast. <laughs> never had that happen. But I've had grown adults come to me and weep and say, I would to God I had heard that many, many years ago. I would to God that somebody would have preached that to my daddy before he took our family down uh, d- down the toboggan slide to, to decadent uh, living and, and so on and so forth. So, so she warns him of that. Then she talks with him about being fair and merciful in his judgment. And, and, and so this, is, this, this advice in those first nine verses is from a woman whose life didn't turn out as she had imagined that it would, but rather than becoming a victim of her past and a victim of what once was and a victim of her scars... And, 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 and her wounds, she became, Bathsheba became a woman of dignity, and you can read this time and time again, up and down, in and out, and you will find no self-pity in any of the words that this woman writes to her son. And disappointment can turn disillusionment, quick, turn to disillusionment very quickly, and make people feel jaded and, and cynical, and, and, and expectations aren't always realized and when they are not realized we sour on marriage our our knight in the shining armor the shine turns to dull rust and we find out that Rapunzel has head lice she's not the prince we thought she would be It could be a child that brings tragedy into your life and breaks your heart maybe it's a perpetual struggle with finances that just wear you down sometimes It's something that lingers from your childhood and the way you were treated at home and the way you were spoken of at home and the fact that you were never encouraged and you were never good enough and nobody ever said to you good job and you carry that into adulthood and you're looking at it around you from the people that love you the most and you're trying to find affirmation from them. Maybe it's infidelity that wounded you and destroyed your ability to trust. You know the Bible says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. And so we walk around with sick hearts because what we thought was, isn't. And how we imagined it, it didn't turn out that way. Steve hauser listen to this. This may sound negative, but, but follow his reasoning. Here's what he said. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. You don't have to laugh, but just snicker inside. It's true, it's true, it's true. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. Uh, You're not the same. You are not that person that walked down the aisle and said, I do. You're not. You've changed. If you haven't changed, I want to know what's wrong with you. I heard a guy say one time to his daughter at a wedding, he said, don't... He, he said to the son-in-law, don't change her. And I thought, then don't get married. Because if you get married, you're going to change each other. Now, I'm grateful that my wife has changed me for the better. But the reality of the matter is, it, it takes time to get to that place. The primary challenge of marriage, he says, is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. So, so his point is, and he explains that later, is, is that we enter marriage with an image and, and and of what that marriage would be, but it, but it's oftentimes more romanticism than it is realism. And, and how could it be different? We're emailing love notes and we're blowing the phone up, telling each other how much we love each other. So romanticism is obviously a huge part of the relationship. But then you settle down and bills come in. Okay, then you're not spending as much time paying attention to each other and. And you discover that the relationship doesn't make you as happy as it once did. You don't feel that, you know, that rush that you felt when it all started out. You're wondering what happened to the person that I thought I was marrying. And so he writes this. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institution of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough we will find the right person this moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage it fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person it's a little cynical but but what he means there, and again he explains that, is who we marry is never exactly who we thought they were. So I didn't really marry you. Now, I'll ask my wife. No, I won't. I, I could ask Susie to come up and, and be honest about it, and, and she would tell you, yeah. I mean, when we got married, I thought I knew him. And then I found out that I didn't know him like I thought I knew him. We were married when we were 19 years old, and so to a certain degree, we had to grow up together. I've often said that the miracle of our marriage that's recorded in heaven, as the angels stared over August 9, 1975, Bethlehem Baptist Church, and we stood in front of John Bonds, is that the son of James Herring is marrying the daughter of Betty Ann Thacker. Dude, this is not good. So they started selling tickets in heaven, okay? And if gambling is allowed, they placed heavy bets on whether we would make it or not. And I don't know who betted for us, but 47 years later, there's, there's a chunk of Golden Street that they own because they took the risk on us and, 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 and we made it through. Now, here, can I give you a good note compared to what he said? Here's the good note. If you will walk with God and follow God, and you will allow God's will to guide you, even though you struggle, the person in the long run will make you the better. Okay? Even though you marry, you know what will happen? It will exceed your expectations. And I'm being real honest with you. I'm being transparent now. Is Susie who I thought she was when I married her? No, she's not. 47 years later, I can say this honestly, she's better. I had no idea. All I knew is she walked into a gymnasium. I'm sitting there in a ball game. I looked at her and said, I like her. I love her. Yeah, I just said, I'll marry her. I mean, I mean, it, for me, it was love. For, I had to convince her. You know, we, we met in January. We were engaged in February. We were married in August. Do not try that, okay? We were 19 years old. and Man, it was off to the races. I want to tell you, we were deeply in love. Now, all this time later, you know what I found out? I found out she's she's far more than I thought I was getting. And she has completed me to the degree that I am. She's helped me and, and brought me to the place. And so that is, that comes... That comes as the result of years of partnering together. That doesn't happen immediately. 47 years and we haven't learned anything? We're not too smart. I mean, 47 years and we haven't picked up on what makes each other happy and what gets on each other's nerves? 47 years? You ought to figure something out along the journey here, somewhere down the line. The second thing, the first is disappointment. And it runs deep sometimes. I'm just disappointed in my relationship and the person and the things and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the mess-ups. I'm just the failures. I'm just disappointed. The second thing is ingratitude. Now, we're moving toward what it is that destroys marriages. But the first step toward that is disappointment. The second step toward that is, is, is ingratitude. Now, notice verse... Um, Notice um, verse number 10. Watch this. Chapter 31, verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? Okay, now, we read it. So watch this. Then, then she goes into a lengthy description of what makes a virtuous woman. Okay? So, so I mean, there's got to be some staggering stuff here, right? Because this woman, she's highlighted, she, this is the woman. I mean, every Mother's Day she's preached on in, in countless places. This is the woman in all the Bible that is highlighted as, as the perfect wife, the wonderful mother, and the goal that every single woman ought to, ought to seek to attain. She's nameless so that you can all put your names there. And then they give a list of her attributes. Okay? Let, let's, it's a staggering list. Number one, she's trustworthy. Now let me say this to you. Trust is the foundation for all relationships. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If you don't trust God, you have no relationship with God. What do we do when we get saved? We put our faith and trust in Christ. Every, the foundational bedrock of every relationship is can I trust you? that's it that's it and so and so okay okay he can trust her no 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 that's 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 the of the whole list that's going to be the biggie okay it starts out with the biggie this is the biggie trust if trust isn't there don't matter what you do you can stand on your head and yodel dixie okay you can listen you can buy flowers you can give starbucks gift cards on an hourly basis, you can clean the house, you can do whatever you want to, but if trust it, not there, the relationship cannot, 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 cannot survive. So, so it starts out with a biggie, alright, so she's trustworthy. Number two, she's good. Well, that's not, hard, is it? Just be good. Number three, she shops for clothes and food. Number four, she cooks. Okay, you're not impressed, and I, I don't, I don't know why, she's not lazy, that's another one, she's got business savvy, guess what else, you ready for this one, hold on, everybody grab your chair, get ready for this, okay, you ready, she plants, that means she puts seeds in the ground, she has a garden, okay, that was probably more important than it is now, okay, but but nonetheless, she's a good steward of health, she sows, she's generous and compassionate, Compassionate to those that are in need. She's industrious. She speaks kindly. She makes life easier for her husband. And she takes care of her family. Wow. 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 Let's write a book on the virtuous woman. Chapter 4. She sews. You, don't, you understand what I'm saying? You understand that after the trust, everything listed here is small... Everything that's listed here. This, th- this, this isn't megaphone stuff. This, this doesn't shake the ground underneath your feet. This is a woman that does the basics. She sews. She cooks. She cleans house. She takes care of her family. Okay. She goes to the store and buys groceries. An occasional shoe. Anyhow, I, so... So, so I mean, th- I mean, look, she's she's shopping. She's making sure that her family th- they're they're taken care of. Now, what 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 is this list? It's all the things that we take for granted. It's exactly what that is. I want the virtuous woman. No, you may have her. I I, I want a, I want a woman that's got virtue. Okay, she'll sew. She'll cook. She'll do what your wife does. The reality of the matter is, they're not big item things. They're small things that we sometimes are so insensitive that we overlook. We look beyond those things. And look at me. Listen to me, guys. Now, we're going to shift gears, but stay with me, because this is us right now. And the reality of the matter is, if we have a wife that scores somewhat high on that list, we better fall on our face and get on our knees and thank Almighty God for it, because there are not a whole lot of running around out there right now, in case you haven't. looked around you there's not a lot of virtue in the world there's not a lot of women that care about their family there's not a lot of women that are concerned about what's going on with their husband and around them they're not really concerned about that and so the reality is you better buy her a throne and make her a queen You, you better you better realize she doesn't deserve a lack of gratitude. She doesn't deserve a critiquing spirit. Now, ma'am, it goes both ways. So your husband's not running around on you? He doesn't have a porn problem on your computer? So, so your husband brings a paycheck home? He doesn't stop off at Joe's Bar and Grill? He's not, he's, not blowing, he's not blowing the paycheck on booze. You don't have to worry about where he's at at night. He comes home. He protects you. He mows the grass. Okay. He fixes things around the house. I'm just telling you that, 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 that if you've got that kind of a mate and you can trust his faithfulness, I think all of us, men and women alike, need to zip the lip And stop criticizing each other and crowding the picture and back up and see the impressionism of what's actually there, where we can appreciate the bigger picture and, and uh, see the little things that we've become selfishly blinded to. Now, here we go, a few minutes left, listen to me carefully. Because marriages survive infidelity, marriages survive disappointment. They survive bad finances. They survive just about everything. They they I- I- in the long run they even survive being married to somebody that has no appreciation and, and, and is so stuffed with self that they cannot look. And even honestly, from the heart of heart, say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For all these years of dedication, thank you. They even survive that. Do you know the one thing that marriages cannot survive 99.9% of the time? It's what destroys a marriage. It's bitterness. because what disappointment does if it's not if if it's not dealt with it leads to bitterness you see you're disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and there's, there's multiple affairs and there's, there's, there's never never getting a grip on the finances. And it's just always, always, always the same thing. And so what happens when that happens and there's never a light at the end of the tunnel, bitterness sets in and you begin to feel yourself that you are, you are imprisoned in a relationship that you can't get out of and you get bitter nobody ever says thank you, nobody ever says I appreciate it, nobody ever says I don't deserve you, nobody ever says for everything you ever have done for me, thank you. Can I just say this, this is, this is going to be off a little bit, but just hang with me, alright? Stay with me a little bit. If there aren't quiet times in your life when you get teary-eyed about your mate, there's something wrong with your relationship. What, What are you going to do? Wait till they're gone? Ask Max. Talk with Max a little bit. See how long Max's eyes stay dry. But the thing I appreciate about Max and Carolyn is that they appreciate each other in the moment. And if you can't think of your mate and realize how undeserving you are and how blessed you are and there aren't times riding in your car listening to a song or just, just thinking about life and realizing you married way over your head and you don't tear up about it then, then, then you've got a dry relationship and you need, to, you need to get on your face before God and ask God to help. Now here's the interesting thing. Paul writes the letter to the church at... Ephesus, we we've discussed that over the past weeks about about mutual submission, verse twenty one, wife submitting and then and then husbands loving and submitting. So there is the mutual submission, and then the individual requirements that God gives. It, it's interesting that in that very same letter to the to the very same church in chapter four and verse thirty, Paul says, "And grieve not the Holy Spirit of 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 um, God whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption." Watch this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now look at v- verse 31. Here's what leads to bitterness. Clamor. That's talking a lot about your problem. Evil speaking is when you put people down. It's, it's anger, it's wrath, and then it's bitterness. So why do you forgive somebody that's done that to you? It's not for their sake, it's for Christ's sake. Your forgiveness of them doesn't show their quality, it shows yours. It does not mean you think they are right and that nothing happened. It means that you love Jesus enough, and you realize how much he's forgiving you, that you're willing to go out on a limb and forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what. That's what Jesus said. Okay. So, so I learn to forgive people, not because they didn't do what they did or that I think they deserve what they get, that they, 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 they're getting. I, I, I have to forgive them so that my relationship with my Christ is right. It doesn't hinge upon them, It hinges upon me and Him. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15. listen to this verse. all right? Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, Lest any root of bitterness stay with me, springing up. Number one, trouble you. So the first thing bitterness is going to do is going to bother you. Let me tell you who. Let me tell you who will be unhealthy. You. You. Okay. Okay. It's, it's like taking a bottle of poison and saying, "I don't like what you did." gulp, gulp, gulp. Okay. Well. Okay. You may be shocked. Probably you're going to cheer. But anyhow. The reality of the matter is, I'm not hurting you by taking bitterness, I'm hurting me. So what does bitterness do? First of all, it troubles you. Second of all, and thereby many be defiled. Let me teach you something about bitterness that you better get down, you better better hold on to. It's the sad truth about bitterness. It cannot be contained. Care who you are? How disciplined you are, how sharp you think you are, how wise you think you are—the the reality. See, bitter people talk, and in talking, so they defile others. It's—it's it's just the—it's just life. It's you spread bitterness to others who get caught up in the maelstrom storm of 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 your bitter your bitter attitude, and it happens to all of us. And and many's defile. What does that mean? It's infectious. It's contagious, it it contaminates, it reaches further than the original source. So, if not for anything else, but for our love of others who love us, we have to protect them by not allowing bitterness into our life. Because even though we may be unaware of it, and other people may not be honest with us, most people can see it a mile away when bitterness enters into our life. Because, because bitterness doesn't live alone well. It needs companionship and seeks the nourishment of agreement. And so a lot of people, when they come and ask for advice, they're not looking for advice, they're looking for agreement. Would you agree with me that I'm justified and this is right? We're all like that. I've been there. You've probably been there. We've, we're all like that. We don't want to go to somebody and say, well, guess what happened to me? And they disagree with us. No, we're, we want agreement. We want agreement. Because that justifies where we're at. And. Now, let me close. There are, two, there are two decisions that have to be made about bitterness. Okay, Two decisions. You ready? Number one, it has to be made about the per, by, by the person who is bitter. Okay, You've, you've been wronged and you're bitter. You have, to, you have to realize it's going to destroy your marriage and, 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 and the spirit of anybody else that you infect. You can't control it. You can't contain it. You might not recognize it, but other people do. So how do you know that you're bitter? Well, we, we just read it. How do you know that you're bitter? First of all, you're constantly angry. Second of all, you can't forgive, for Christ's sake. Third of all, you embrace hopelessness. There's no answer. Fourth of all, you, you talk about it a lot. That's evil speaking. Okay. So when we get to that place, what does that naturally what does that train hook us to? It hooks us to bitterness. So if you're there and you see yourself in that, you're bitter. And the first step to getting rid of bitterness is acknowledging the fact that that's where you're at. What's the antidote for, for bitterness? It was forgiveness. OK? Chapter four, verse 32 of Ephesians. And let me help you with this, and then I've got I to gotta wrap it up, but listen to me, Forgiveness isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling. You know, I just woke up today and I just said they wronged me, but I I cannot imagine. I I just feel, I feel crazy today. I just feel like somehow I need to forgive them. It's a wonderful feeling. No, that's not what happens. You, You know where forgiveness comes from? Choice. You choose. Because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, you make a choice. I'm gonna forgive. Man, I've forgiven people that did not deserve it. They didn't ask for it. And by the way, listen, to me, I've forgiven people that would not accept it. They wouldn't accept it. I've forgiven dead people before. Okay. The actor that killed Old Yeller. He's gone, and I, <laughs> I said, okay, I'm letting it go. I'm letting that go. Finally. As a grown man, I'm, a, I'm getting over it. Second of all, not just the person who's bitter. Now stay with me, and we'll tie a knot in this. The second decision that has to be made is by the person who's causing the bitterness. So let me talk with you. Don't blame your partner when your marriage crashes and burns. If you're causing bitterness, then you, you turned it toxic you refused to take accountability you didn't take the steps necessary to bring the marriage back into harmony you had the wheel you were in the driver's seat and you drove it off the cliff so when your marriage is at the bottom of the cliff burning on the rocks don't go point your finger at everybody else if you're the source of bitterness you've got to stop being selfish that's how's that for simple solution to a complex problem. Stop being selfish. You know what I was when we first got married? I was selfish. Susie's waving her Bible. Glory, it. it's true. I was selfish, dude. I'm, not, I'm being honest. I'm being real up front. I know. I, I was 19. 19. I was selfish. You know why I married her? Because I wanted her to make me happy. Okay. I needed arm candy. And so. No I, I, I loved her. But I was selfish. It was a selfish love. Our marriage was a selfish marriage. And I thought. That her job in life. Was to make me happy. And I wanted to help her do that. Help her make me. Give her suggestions and a list. I was selfish no, I'm, no I was selfish that's who I was I was selfish and it didn't leave me easily and there were times well I had meetings with my kids and sat around with them I said dad blew it I'm, I'm growing up it's slow I know but I'm growing up and I'm learning to be a man and own up to my responsibilities so we have to get to the place where we stop being selfish it's really a simple solution to a real complex problems because it was a struggle for me now I went to I went to uh, d and and tried to find a triangle one of those dinner bells can you imagine nobody in this valley has a dinner bell I wanted it because it's a triangle so so I want you to let's do the imaginary triangle I've done this for you before let's do it again and, and, and close the book on this aren't right, you ready so we got a triangle okay how many of you can see it thank both of you all right so here we are So we we got a triangle here, all right? Now watch this. Here's the wife. This is great. We love, we get excited about this at marriage conferences. Here's the wife. Here's the husband. And there's God. It's a triangle. It's beautiful. No. No. Look how far apart they are from God. They're equally far apart from each other. But as we move up the triangle closer to God, guess who we're also getting closer to? Each other. Now watch this. If one stays here, and the other starts growing, they're actually getting further apart. Because, boom, boom. You're actually, when one person wants it to work, and one person is willing to invest, and one person is getting closer to God, you're actually growing further apart. So you have to stay on the same page, growing together, and getting closer, and getting closer. Two 19-year-old kids, that walked down an aisle and got married 47 years later august the 9th are closer together not because we're two great brilliant people it's simply because we're closer to god than we were then and so our goal shouldn't this be our goal Sh- shouldn't our goal be to be better christians shouldn't our shouldn't our goal be for me to be closer for her for her to be closer And as we get closer, doesn't that automatically draw us together? should. And I pray it will. Let's bow our heads. I don't know where you're at in your marriage or what's going on, but just, hey, look, hope. Just stay at it. You're going to falter and fail, and so will I. Let's just stay faithful, best we can. Let God have His way in your marriage and in your life. God bless you. Father, thank you for your love. We want to pray for Kim, Lord, that you'd help her, surround her, wrap her in your arms of grace. And I pray that every step in this journey, she would feel your presence, that she would sense your power. Help her, comfort her, be with her and Sherman in a very special way. We love you. We thank you for Our time together in your word, I pray that we would, um, as couples, strive to be closer to you so that we can be closer to each other. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things.